I am both excited and thankful to be able to bring this message this morning. And to begin, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 16, verses 21 to 28. So Matthew 16, beginning at verse 21. From that time on, from the time that Jesus had confirmed to his disciples that he is definitely the Messiah, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Peter turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Is the mic? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Is that looking a little bit better? Testing. All right. So last night we had the fun of going to one of Sarah's ballet performances, and it was the story of the deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt. Sarah got to be, well, one of her roles was the role of sand. And as sand, she got to dance to some really fun and energetic music. And at one point, her and the other three dancers just, whoop, into the splits. And as she rehearsed, and as I watched it, every time I see that move, I just flinch. Like, it's really cool, it's really smooth, but it's also really painful because I don't think anyone's hips are truly made to move in those directions. And when we're in the splits, we're pretty immobile, right? If you try to move around, you can't do much. And when we have one foot going one way and one foot going the other, we also can feel just a lot of tension. I mean, unless you're Sarah and you stretch every day. For most of us, it creates a lot of tension. And as we enter today's text, we can just imagine Peter's tension as he is trying to have one foot fully behind Jesus and the other foot in his own direction. 
So Jesus has just confirmed to Peter that, yes, he is the Messiah. Peter has been witnessing miracles. He's seen demons flee. He's seen crowds gather, people being healed. He's hearing amazing testimonies. He's just excited. This is amazing. The Messiah is here, and Peter gets to be one of his followers. Amazing. And now, after confirming to Peter that, yes, Jesus is definitely the Messiah, as we heard from Marissa yesterday, Jesus is telling his disciples that he's going to go to Jerusalem, that he's going to suffer, that he's going to be killed. And you can just imagine the wheels in Peter's mind spinning. Wait a minute, Jesus. You've got this all wrong. Like, you're supposed to keep gathering crowds and showing God's power and demolish Rome and to give freedom to the Jews. Your path is victory. Your path is triumph. And my path with you is the same. This talk of suffering and dying and denial isn't part of the plan. So we see Peter pull Jesus aside to correct him. And Peter must be really bothered by what Jesus is saying because in the rabbinic tradition, a student does not correct their teacher. The teacher is master. The student listens. The student learns. The student submits. And yet we see Peter stepping out of place to tell his master, never, Lord. This will never happen to you. And as we see in the text, Peter gets a strong response. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter has just gone from, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. You are Peter, the rock, to away from and behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block. Not only is Peter out of line in rebuking Jesus, but more importantly, Jesus can discern that he's participating with Satan. And Jesus' rebuke happens in front of the other disciples. We can feel Peter's shock, his confusion, possible shame, just the tension he's experiencing. Like, he didn't realize that he was speaking out of his own desires and expectations. He reacted out of what he thought should happen. Instead of listening to his rabbi and trying to understand his perspective, and in so doing, he's participating with Satan. Jesus gives a strong reaction to Peter because he understands the tension. Before Peter's rebuke, Jesus was preparing his disciples for death and also for his resurrection if Peter had just taken the time to listen to all of what Jesus was telling him. Jesus, who had done nothing wrong, was already in the midst of continual ridicule by the religious leaders. 
He's just been rejected by his hometown. His cousin John has been beheaded for faithfulness to righteousness. And Jesus knows that he is heading to Jerusalem where he's going to be tortured and killed. And there's a reason why in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays, Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. The Father has shown Jesus that the path before him is not an easy one for any human, even human who is God. He may be God, but as the author of Hebrews tells us, He was tempted in every way, just as we are. Satan, through Peter, is tempting Jesus away from his father's mission. Take an easier path. Use your power to subdue your enemies. Suffer? No, not you. There are other ways. But Jesus has two feet planted behind his father and his father's mission. Peter isn't there yet. All he can see is disappointment, misery, unfulfilled expectations, confusion, mere human concerns. He has one foot firmly planted behind Jesus, but the other one is still going in a different direction of what he thinks ought to happen and will happen. Jesus then puts the focus on his followers. Whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses it for my sake will find it. And this must create tension in them as they listen. Can't you see them? Scratching their heads, huh? What's Jesus talking about? They're torn between what they expected following Jesus would look like and now what Jesus is saying following him is going to look like. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Be humiliated. Be mocked. Be spit on and beaten. Lose your life. These aren't easy words for any followers of Jesus. And I think they're especially difficult for those of us in the American church. We live within a culture of comfort. Does something hurt? Take aspirin. Life should be our way, right away. We're surrounded by toys and entertainment. We have Pinterest pages to allure us into bettering our lives in many different ways. We live with air-conditioned summers and heated winters with warm showers and a plethora of food choices. When we think of participating in the kingdom of God in his ways, we often talk about forgiveness, provision, healing, abundance, protection, love, comfort. And all of these are good, and they are all part of God's kingdom. Deny yourselves. Suffer. Follow Jesus no matter what the cost. 
this is part of the message that often gets pushed away into the shadows. And like Peter and the disciples, we often also feel pulled in two directions. We want to give generously. Yet we also, I guess generously would be this way, but we also love spending money on various forms of comfort and entertainment that would hinder our generosity. We want to tell Jesus, yes, we'll go anywhere you send us. But uh, we're also attached to family and friends and conveniences in the area where we live. And even as I say this, I think how I would feel and the tension I would face if God were to call some of you away from this community. We want to give our time to building relationships for the sake of sharing the gospel. We want to give our time to discipling younger believers, to reading scripture, to prayer, and to other kingdom purposes. Yet... There are just so many other things we also like to do and feel we need to do. And some of those things that we really like are hard to give up. We want our kids to follow wholeheartedly behind anything that God might call them toward. Yet, we also don't want them to experience pain, suffering, hardship, or have grandkids half a world away from us if that's his calling. We want to follow Jesus faithfully. And yet sometimes it's hard to imagine or remember to pay attention even to what Jesus is doing in the moment. We just have so many hopes and desires and ambitions and agendas in our head and on our heart. We struggle to keep Jesus' voice at the forefront of our days and of our decisions. There's a reason Jesus warns his followers that the way to eternal life is narrow. It's not an easy one. Jesus, the way, the truth, the life, promises us life and great reward to those who follow him on his journey of self-denial and suffering for the sake of God's kingdom. It was for the joy, the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, scorning its shame. And he calls his disciples to do the same And he offers that same joy. Later in Peter's life, we see him putting both feet behind Jesus. Peter could have cowered and closed up at Jesus' rebuke, but he didn't. Instead, he continued to listen. He continued to learn. He continued to submit He kept coming back again and again to receive grace. And at the beginning of Acts, we see him empowered by the Holy Spirit, speaking to a group of Jews from every nation, testifying that Jesus is the Messiah. We see him healing the lame. We see him being released, going to prison, but then being miraculously released from prison. 
we see him experiencing threat of death and being flogged. When he is flogged for his testimony before the Jewish leaders, he leaves rejoicing because he was considered worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus. And we're told that he died as a martyr on a cross upside down because he didn't consider himself worthy as the same death as Jesus. In one of his letters to exile, persecuted believers, he's the one who wrote, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice. And as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Peter puts both feet behind Jesus, and he doesn't just learn, but he experiences the truth of Jesus' words, that suffering and self-denial for Jesus' sake brings life, joy, resurrection, and great reward. I don't think Peter wanted to suffer. I don't think Jesus wanted to suffer. Yet, the reality is, when we wholeheartedly follow Jesus in a world that's in rebellion against him, suffering and self-denial will come. And the suffering and self-denial in itself is not the blessing, but what the Father accomplishes through it. His sake is glorious. We enjoy reading missionary biographies at our house, and this past year, one of the biographies we read was Through Gates of Splendor. It's a pretty familiar story. It's the story of Jim Elliott written by his wife, Elizabeth. They were missionaries in the 1950s to a tribe in Ecuador, and through a series of events, Jim connected with four other young missionaries in an attempt to reach the unreached, war-driven, an unreached war-driven people group. Due to cultural understandings, when it was time to make contact, all five missionaries were slaughtered, leaving behind young wives and young and even unborn children. And I'd like to share with you two sections from Elizabeth's testimony and biography of Jim. The first is from a few days before the men are about to go out on the mission. The other wives and I talked together one night about the possibility of becoming widows. What would we do? God gave us peace of heart and confidence that whatever might happen, his word would hold. We know that when he puts forth his sheep, he goes before them. God's leading was unmistakable up to this point. Each of us knew when we married our husband that there would, would not be any questions about who came first. God and his work held first place in each of our lives. 
It was the condition of true discipleship. It became devastatingly meaningful now. It was time for soul-searching, a time for counting the possible cost. Was it the thrill of adventure that drew our husbands off? Their letters and the journals make it abundantly clear that these men did not go out as some men would go to shoot a lion or climb a mountain. Their compulsion was from a different source. Each had made a personal transaction with God, recognizing that he belonged to God, first of all, by creation, and secondly, by redemption through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. This double claim on his life settled once and for all the question of allegiance. To these men, Jesus Christ was God and had actually taken upon himself human form in order that he might die and by his death provide not only escape from punishment, which their sin merited, but also a new kind of life, eternal both in length and quality. This meant simply that Christ was to be obeyed, and more than that, that he would provide the power to obey. The point of decision had been reached. God's command, go and preach the gospel to every nation, was the categorical imperative. The question of personal safety was wholly irrelevant. And then about the time after the slaughter, when she's facing the cost, she writes, In the kitchen, we sat quietly as the reporters were finished, fingering the watches and wedding rings that had been brought back, trying for the hundredth time to picture the scene. Which of the men watched the others fall? Which of them had time to think of his wife and children? Had one been covering the others in the treehouse and come down in an attempt to save them? Had they suffered long? The answers to these questions remained a mystery. This much we knew. Whoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospel, the same shall save it. There was no question as to the present state of our loved ones. They were with Christ. The quiet trust of the mothers helped the children trust God's purposes. I know my daddy is with Jesus, but I miss him, and I wish he would come down and play with me once in a while said three-year-old Stevie McCulley, one of the kids left behind. Several weeks later, back in the States, Stevie's little brother Matthew was born. One day the baby was crying. Stevie was hurt to say, Never you mind. When we get to heaven, I'll show you which one is our daddy. Was the price too great? To the world at large, this was a sad waste of five young lives. But God worked his purpose in all things. There were those whose lives were changed by what happened on Palm Beach. And Sam, would you just put up the slide of, there's two slides just to show you a picture of Elizabeth. That's Elizabeth and Jim, and then the next one. So the 1996 Mission Convention I had the gift of hearing Elizabeth give her testimony, her and Jim's testimony, to an auditorium filled with thousands. Only God knows the impact her testimony had just that night. 
through her testimony, the other men and the testimony of the other men's deaths, numerous people, missionaries, were strengthened, emboldened, and sent out. In time, Elizabeth even had the opportunity to testify to the group of people that had killed her husband. And there she is with two people from that tribe. Her husband's murderer became one of her friends and followed Jesus. Was her journey easy? Was Jim's? No. Was there temptation to compromise, to play it safe, to be bitter, to delve into self-pity, and to walk away from Jesus to an easier path? I can only imagine. And yet, when I heard her speak back at that convention, she testified with joy. She said, the will of God is always far different from what we imagine, far bigger, far more difficult, and far more glorious. And she spoke from experience. It's striking to me that as we as a family read various missionary biographies and articles from Voices and Martyrs, that when we hear about denial and suffering for Jesus, the stories never end with, oh, what a shame. It wasn't worth it. I wish I had stuck to comfortable, to easy, to safe, to plenty. Every testimony ends with glory. And I know that I'm speaking to a group who knows this truth. Some of you have chosen to intentionally live in less comfortable and more difficult neighborhoods for Jesus' sake. It's beautiful to see the depth of generosity and the service that comes from this congregation for the name of Jesus. Whether by prayer walking, making a meal for someone in need, discipling younger believers, offering hospitality, giving time and energy service as deacons, elders, worship leaders, nursery workers, and in other roles, praying for and with others. I just can't tell you what a super beautiful gift it is to be part of this congregation, a congregation that's seeking to put both feet behind Jesus. And he sees our desires to be faithful, and that's why this morning he gently comes to us to show us the places where we're straddling. He knows that if we stay in that posture, we're going to hurt ourselves. We'll miss out on the fullness of life he has for us, the joy he has for us. There is great reward, both in this world, but also in the next. When we're surrounded by all the treasures of this world, it's easy to, in running after them, Forget that one day, they're all going to pass away. And Jesus doesn't want us to enter the new creation empty-handed. He wants to give us reward greater 
than earthly treasures in this lifetime and further great reward when he returns. He longs to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and receive the treasures that you've stored up for yourself in my kingdom. He may be asking us to give up something we love. To be willing to risk a relationship or disappoint others. To do something uncomfortable or go somewhere uncomfortable for his sake. He may be asking us to take a small step of self-denial and preparations for more intense times to come. Whatever or wherever, he's asking you to fully submit. The answer is yes. The step may appear difficult and probably will be difficult. In the difficulty, I encourage you to tell other people about it so they can pray with and encourage you as you take it. Because that step is really a step into ever more glorious relationship and life with Jesus. And it's an investment into even greater reward to come. I would like to pray for us at this time. And as I pray, why doesn't the worship team come forward to lead us in a song of response? Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. That even in the face of suffering, in the face of giving things up for you, that your ways are good, always good, all the time. We thank you for your faithfulness to us, even when we're struggling. We thank you for your encouragement and your spirit's presence. We thank you that you keep coming to us again and again to show us ways we're straddling and call us toward greater faithfulness to call us into your joy. And we thank you for all of the joy and goodness and life that you have for us. And as both we sing this song and enter communion and even through the coming week, we ask that you'd reveal to us an area of our life where you're calling us to take a step away from ourselves and toward you. And that you'd show us even the first step in taking that step. We love you, Lord. Amen.